invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. We've been working our way through the Heidelberg Catechism, and we're up to the section on the sacraments. And so we've had a couple of sermons by Pastor Paul on baptism. I, be, I believe last week also he began to consider the Lord's Supper. And we're going to continue to do so today from Matthew 26 as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper as he is partaking of the Passover with his disciples, and from there, seamlessly, imperceptibly, transitions from the Passover to the Lord's Supper that we celebrate today in light of his body broken and his blood shed for us, his people. So Matthew 26, we'll read beginning at verse 17. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Now on the first day of unleavened bread... The disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and this is the main text that we want to focus on, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." So far from God's holy word, we're going to turn now to the Catechism, Lord's Day 28, in the back of your hymnal. And you'll find that on page 884. Just a quick comment here. You'll notice there's three questions how, what, and where, uh, which are the exact same questions that were asked regarding baptism in Lord's Day 26. So you see a parallel uh, between these uh, two Lord's Days regarding these two sacraments that Christ has instituted. We read earlier of uh, Christ's institution of baptism. Think of when he uh, was raised from the dead and uh, uh, um, commissioned his disciples to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we had the institution of baptism in Matthew 28. And here in Matthew 26, we read of Jesus' words of institution of the Lord's Supper. And so we'll draw out some implications of that, um, even as they're placed here for us in the catechism. And so there's three questions, and I'll read the question, and we'll respond together with the answers. So question 75. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits. In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him, 
With this command come these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hands of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? It means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and in this way to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more. Through the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so, although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and we forever live on and are governed by one spirit, as the members of our body are by one soul. Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup? In the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul in these words, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So far from the catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the 17th century English poet, uh, George Herbert, had written a poem entitled The Agony. It's a wonderful poem this evening or this afternoon. Feel free to go look it up. And that poem consists of three stanzas. The opening stanza, he speaks about the philosopher, the lover of wisdom, right? That's what philosophy is, philo, love, sophia, wisdom, love of wisdom. And the wise man, he says, searches the greatness of the earth. He, he looks to the farthest depths of the sea, the highest mountain ranges, and sees some amazing and spectacular things. But Herbert says that two things he overlooks, two things misses his gaze, the greatness of sin and the greatness of love. And Herbert says in the next two stanzas regarding the greatness of sin and love that both are found when you look to the cross of Jesus Christ. He says to know sin, right, to, to know its magnitude, to know its greatness, to know its intensity, one must look only to Gethsemane. One must look there where Christ is, pleading with his father, and being, as it were, wrung out so that blood itself drips from his pores. 
Gethsemane, as some of you may know, it means an olive press. It was where grapes were crushed. And it's there where the Son of God, bearing the sins of the world, begins to be squeezed and crushed. It was as Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 53.10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When a soul makes an offering for guilt, and yet he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And so Herbert says that sin is that press in vice which forceth pain to hunt his cruel food through every vein. Christ himself dripping blood there showing us the magnitude of sin. But more than that, merely just seeing our sin in Christ's suffering being crushed in the olive press of Gethsemane, he says also to look to love. And to know love is to go to the cross where that same man, suffering in Gethsemane, is hanging on a cross and his side is pierced. So that blood that dripped out of his vein now gushes forth from his side. And it's this line that I found so amazing as it leads us to think about the Lord's Supper. He had said that love is that liquor, sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood but I as wine. Isn't that a startling thing? That when we drink and have a participation in the blood of Christ, it comes to our lips not as sour but sweet. It comes to our lips not as a little cup of vinegar, but as a sweet glass of wine. The death of Christ tastes to us sweet like wine. It's an odd picture to think about. When does death ever taste sweet? How can death ever taste sweet? If you were to speak that to the world around us, or to maybe you sitting here, if you don't know Christ and his resurrection, right? You hear death, and immediately that comes to mind is something that's sour, something you recoil from, right? If you drink something sour, vinegar touches your lips, or your your mouth puckers up, and you recoil from that. But if something is sweet, right, you want more of it. You want more of it. How can death be sweet, to want more of Christ, to want more of, par- of a participation in his death. This is the wonder of the gospel of Christ. This is the wonder and the why the wisdom of this world cannot find out these things. The lover of wisdom can search the depths of the earth and yet never come to know sin and love can never come to know apart from God's word and revelation to us, even as it's pictured to us in the Lord's Supper, how death can become sweet for those who have a participation in Christ. And so as we think about the Lord's Supper as something that is sweet to us, something that is precious to us, something that is nourishing to us, this message stands contrary to the wisdom of the world, but it also then strengthens us in our faith. And so we're going to dive into uh, thinking briefly, we don't have a ton of time in this first service, to think briefly about what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 26 as he institutes the Lord's Supper during Passover. And how when he institutes these things, we find the sweetness of all of the benefits and blessings of Christ pictured for us here. And so we're going to think of it under three points. First, the host, the bread, and the cup. The host, the bread, and the cup. 
And so first, the host. It's Jesus himself who is the host of the Passover with his disciples. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, it's Jesus who is the host. In fact, when we see him instituting the Lord's Supper, it's he who is most active. His disciples are receiving while Jesus is giving, right? Four verbs are are spoken regarding Jesus, right? Jesus took the bread. He blessed the bread. He broke the bread. He gave it to his disciples, right? All of these verbs are things that Jesus does for you. And it's why Jesus is going to go on to say that this is the meal of God's covenant, his covenant of grace that begins not with your initiative, but God's initiative, right? The Lord's Supper testifies to that fact of God's grace, initiated by God. Its source is not found in you, but in God's love and in his heart for his people to come to them, to condescend to them, to meet with you. Jesus, we have to make sure we have this deeply embedded in our minds that when we come to the Lord's Supper, it's not first and foremost us coming, right, and making it all about us, but it's Jesus inviting us as guests at his table that he might give to us not just of his merits, not just what he's earned for us in his death and resurrection, but to give himself to us is what we see pictured for us in these elements. And this, in this way, we see how the Lord's Supper is indeed the gospel made visible, right? The word of God is sufficient. God did not need to give us sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, but he gave them to us because of our weakness, right? The gospel calls us to believe something and to grab hold of something that we cannot see. I cannot see the blood of Christ shed for me. I wasn't there 2,000 years ago to see Christ hanging on the cross. And even if I was, I couldn't see his blood actually cleansing me of my sins. These are unseen realities that the Bible calls us to grab hold of by faith, to consent to and to trust. And because these are things that I cannot see, it's often hard for us to believe them. We often find ourselves praying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? Strengthen my faith. So we sit under the preaching of God's word, but it's also why God gave us the sacraments. The sacraments make God's word visible to us. So as the catechism says, just as real as that bread is, just as real as the wine is, so too Christ's body and blood has been given to me for my nourishment, and for my benefit. And so when the first thing we must think about when we think about the Lord's Supper is that Christ is the host. It's Christ who feeds me. It's Christ who nourishes me. And in the Christian life, as we face trials, as we face areas of our lives where we want more We want to grow in, and we want to um, develop maturity in, and we want to put off the old ways and put on the new ways, and and we want to find uh, freedom and, and liberty in Christ, and all of these good things that God promises to us, you find them in Christ as he gives them graciously to you. That's the place to start if you are to be transformed and changed in any area of your life. In any area of your life, from the youngest to the oldest here, Our children, as they grow in Christ, right, they are to grow in him, indeed. To grow, as Peter says, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we have our eyes fixed anywhere else, the Christian life is not going to progress. You're not going to mature. But if your eyes are fixed on Christ, and you're trusting in him, and you're resting in him, 
and you're looking to no other than to him, then you will find your life changed one degree of glory by the next. Because you see in Christ, in a sense, who you are as you are united to him by faith. And it's in Christ that the new life of faith in you is nourished and strengthened as you participate, not just in his benefits, but also in him, by his spirit, as that's pictured for us in the Lord's Supper. So that's the host of the meal, right? So Christ is the one acting here. And as he administers this meal, he gives us two elements, right? He gives us the bread and he gives us the cup, both of them significant for us. Jesus and this Passover takes the bread and he breaks it. He takes the cup and gives it to his disciples. Now, one question to ask before we look at each separately is why do we have two elements? And why do we have the body and the blood separated from one another? Kind of an interesting thing. I don't have ever thought about that. I think the main reason is that it pictures for us The need, of course, for Christ's body to truly have been broken, for death truly to have occurred, right? If blood has been separated from the body, if if, if a body has been relinquished of all blood, there is no life in it. It's it's, it's dead. And so the Lord's Supper in the most uh, picturesque, not really, that's not the right word, but in the most graphic sense shows us the death of Christ in his body broken, in his blood broken poured out. We see those two elements for us here. So first, the bread. Jesus, it says there, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his uh, disciples. And so Jesus here uh, begins with his, this bread. It says that he took the bread, right? And so in taking the bread, he sets it apart for a sacramental use. He sets it apart from ordinary bread. It remains ordinary bread. It doesn't become anything more than just bread. But it's set apart now as a sign and a seal of God's covenant that we've been talking about. So he takes the bread and then he gives thanks. He devotes it to God praying that God might use this bread as it's been set apart for its intended purpose. It's why we pray before we eat our meals, right children? We pray that God would would cause this food before us to do what it's intended to do, to nourish our bodies. And so, too, we thank God, and, and Jesus thanks God for the bread, praying that he might use it for his covenantal purpose in nourishing God's people as a sign and seal of that spiritual food that is ours, which is Christ himself. And then Jesus not only takes the bread and gives thanks, but then he breaks the bread. The bread that we break is not a fellowship in the body of Christ. Jesus takes the bread to show where and what source all of the benefits we receive in Christ must come from. It must come from his death. It must come from him dying that we might find the forgiveness of our sins. He breaks it and then he gives it to us. He gives it to his disciples. He gives it to us. And again, we see it's Christ who gives, it's we who receive. And as he does this, he then gives these words to accompany his actions, right? These are all actions that Jesus is doing. And now he gives words to explain his actions. He gives words that are both a word of promise and a word of command. And as we've said in the past, every covenant 
as Jesus is establishing the new covenant with his people, every covenant has both promises and obligations. And the promises always come first, right? The obligations always flow out of what God has done for us by his grace. And then we're called in gratitude to God to then walk in the newness of life, to offer up to him new obedience. And so these words in which Jesus gives us is both a word of command and a word of promise. He says, as a word of command, take, eat, right? So two commands that are given to his people to take and to eat. We are to take with our hands and we are to eat with the mouth of faith. That as we take and receive, we take and eat It is not merely an external thing. It's not just that we eat this piece of bread and our bodies are nourished, but that we, in taking and eating, Jesus is calling us to participate and to partake of him with the mouth of faith. To receive of him as he has given him to us. And he grounds this command, right, take and eat in a promise, right? Why should I take and eat? On what basis can I take and eat? Well, Jesus gives them this promise, this is my body. And on these words, of course, many of us know much controversy has um, beset the church over the years, mostly because of the confusion that came from importing things external to the Bible into the Bible. Think specifically of the Roman Catholic interpretation of this phrase, this is my body. In their interpretation, while the bread looks and looks like bread it keeps the accidents of bread the appearance of bread its substance changes to become the actual body and blood of christ and the only way they can come to that conclusion is by importing a philosophy foreign to the scriptures which they derive from aristotle aristotle had distinguished between the appearance of something and the substance of something and in their minds the Roman Catholic interpretation, these things can be separated. The bread can appear to be bread while in substance being Christ. Now, there's a host of other issues there, but you can see at least briefly that this interpretation only is possible when we take something outside of the Bible and begin reading it into the Bible. Jesus' words are much more simpler than that. This is my body. Of course, as the disciples heard that word from Jesus, right, They would say, no, that's your body, pointing to to himself, of course, right? So, of course, it would be very simple and obvious for the disciples to recognize that Jesus is saying that this bread is meant to signify. It is a sign of his body that was soon to be broken. It It signifies the body of Christ. This is my body. This thing, this bread, signifies my body. That's what's going on in the Lord's Supper. It's a sign pointing to the body of Christ. And Jesus goes on to say, um, at least in the Gospel of Luke, he says that this thing, this body, this bread is broken for you. Right? It's given to you. And the catechism picks up on this. Right? It's not just a matter of looking from a distance and seeing the body of Christ broken as just a picture of love or just a picture of something that's meant to inspire us, but it's broken for you that you might participate in his death. You might participate in his body. So that's the bread that is given to us. 
Secondly, the cup, and Jesus gives more of an elaboration on the cup, right? The bread is given, but then in verse 27, he took a cup, and likely if if you are somewhat familiar with the Jewish Passover, there were four cups that were given. Uh, This is likely the third cup within the Passover meal, uh, which would be blessed um, in that meal. And so Jesus takes a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, right? Again, Jesus is the one acting. Jesus is the one hosting this meal. He gives it to them, and again, he gives a word of command and a word of promise, right? The word of command, drink of it, all of you. Drink of it, all of you, right? Christ calls us, and really it's a wonderful command, a beautiful command to think that it's Jesus who commands us to participate in his death, to participate in his blood, to drink of it. It's a command that goes out to find our life in him, and again he gives and grounds it in a word of promise, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Here, encapsulated in just a few words, is the riches, are the riches of the gospel of Christ. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins, right? The power is found in the blood of Christ, poured out. It establishes a new covenant. It brings us into fellowship with God, the heart of that covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. Jesus is saying that in my blood, I, I accomplish that. I establish that friendship again, that you might know God. And in knowing him, you might have eternal life. For in knowing him, in participating in his blood, you find the forgiveness of sins. Nothing in all of the world, in all of history, could make that declaration other than what Jesus, than Jesus Christ here. You could search the earth, every corner, under every rock, in every instance, in every event, in every person, comprehensively, and not a single event or person or thing that you could ever encounter could say to you that my blood is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ can do so. And what a marvel that he says that it's poured out for many. Speaking of the nations coming in, not just for a particular group, as the Israelites, for example, but for many even as Jesus says earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, that many will come from east and west to recline at table with Abraham. As the Gospel is then opened up, the new covenant, the benefit of the forgiveness of sins is now extended and brought to the nations who are brought in. And they come to no other than Jesus Christ. His blood alone can bring us this new life. And it's His blood that we find the forgiveness of sins. This was the very mission that Jesus came to accomplish. Back in the opening of, the, of Matthew, Jesus, uh, Joseph is, is, called, or is told by the angel to name the son in Mary's womb Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And here is Jesus saving his people from their sins by dying on their behalf, by pouring out his blood for them, And so as we remember the death of Christ, as we remember his blood poured out, 
that remembrance is not just a matter of looking back at something and saying, you know, how great that was or how nice that was. But in remembering Christ's death, we are also called to remember and to live in and to enjoy all of the benefits that flow from it. Think about when Israel would remember the Passover. They would remember when God drew them out of Egypt, right? It wasn't just thinking back at that event, but thinking about all that came from that event as well. The freedom, the liberty from uh, Pharaoh's oppression, to now live with God, to be with God, to now enter into a land filled with milk and honey, to dwell with God, to have fellowship with God, right? To remember the, the Passover was not just to remember that event, but all that flowed from that event. And so too, when we remember the death of Christ, when we remember his body broken, signified and sealed in the bread, and we remember his blood shed, signified and sealed in the wine, we are called to, to remember, to live in, to walk in, to enjoy all of the benefits that flow out of his death, the forgiveness of our sins, a new life by his spirit in which we are being sanctified, the hope of one day being glorified. To truly remember the death of Christ is to remember all that flows out of that death, all of his benefits, and the most important benefit being Christ himself. Right Again, we had said earlier, that in hosting this meal, Christ not only gives us his benefits, which are great, and we need those, but he gives us himself, that we might know him personally, that we might have friendship and fellowship with Christ unto life everlasting. And it's that last point that brings us to our conclusion and to these final words that Jesus says in verse 29. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine. You might say, why use this language, the fruit of the vine? Well, it's language that was reminiscent of the Old Testament. Language that was used by the prophets as they looked forward to a new creation. God's people at this time had withered to nothing, right? They had become a desert, a wasteland. But Jesus is saying that I will drink this again with you, of the fruit of the vine, speaking of new life having sprung, a new creation having come, an abundance that God provides it. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is heralding the new creation that in his death, the new creation and resurrection, the new creation has come. That's why as we drink of his death, it comes to us not as vinegar, but as wine, not as sour, but as sweet. This is the wine of the new creation, right? This is the wine that is not found from the grapes pressed of this earth, but the wine of the new creation that is found in Jesus Christ. And so not only do we then remember in the Lord's Supper, and all that flows out of what Christ has accomplished to us. But we follow that to its end. We follow all of the benefits as they flow from Christ's death for us to their appointed end in a new creation. And so the Lord's Supper, right, as we come to the Lord's Supper, it's not a funeral service. Right? A funeral service is kind of a dirge. It's, 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 it's dark and... But as we come to the Lord's Supper, it is indeed a resurrection service as we participate in the body and the blood 
of Christ. And with that, we are filled with the joy of the wine of the new creation, which is Christ himself. And this is not meant to only be at the supper, right? Because the supper is picturing for us the gospel. Every time we hear the gospel of Christ, it is to fill us with joy by the wine of the new creation, Christ himself. And as we come to sit under his word, as that word fills us, it fills us like that wine of the new creation. And that our lives are then moved accordingly, moved to live as those who belong and participate and are nourished by the new creation, Christ himself. Love is that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that in his death, and resurrection, we find newness of life, so that as we drink of his death, as we drink of his blood poured out for us, Father, it comes to our lips, not sour, but sweet. It comes as the wine of the new creation. Father, thank you that we have this great hope. Even as we remember, so too we have a foretaste of sitting at table with Christ in his kingdom to enjoy his presence forever and ever. And so, Father, may you nourish us even this day with Christ himself, who is our life, and with whom are the words of eternal life. We pray this in all all in his name. Amen.